Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back. As we head into hour three, Thursday, April 22nd, um, you've heard me talk on this before, but every functioning society, every polity needs uh, a certain number of community members, some you may know, some you may not, to keep it running, to keep things going in the right direction. And uh, we are blessed in Arizona to have uh, one of those uh, quiet people who does a lot of things that we um, we don't realize where they came from. She is a dear friend. She is Karen Taylor Robeson. She's an attorney in town and the founder and president of Arizona Strategies, member of the Board of Regents at ASU. She started a really great program a year ago to encourage, teach, and appreciate freedom of expression, freedom of speech, academic freedom. And she's doing it again this year and wanted to come in and talk to you all about that. So, Karen, thanks for coming in. Thanks for all you do in our community. And thanks for this special project. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's my uh, privilege to talk about the Regents Cup and, and what, it, what it means for all of us. Good. Tell us about it. This came, up, uh, as an, uh, this came up as a concept for you a little over a year ago, really, didn't it? It did. It, it actually was more than that, but we, we were able to realize the first iteration of it a year ago. It's really an opportunity to celebrate free speech on our our public universities campuses. Um, American colleges and campuses are rife today with civil unrest and discord and, and, and speakers being shouted down. Uh, and, and while our universities aren't, aren't perfect, right, they're doing better than most. Uh, Arizona State University has been granted a green rating for the Foundation uh, for Individual Rights in Education, and, and ASU was the first, and I'm proud to say that now all three of our universities have that coveted green rating, uh, and and that's that's pretty important because out of 3,500 colleges and universities across this country, only 55 have a green rating, and all three of our universities do. So I think we have a responsibility, in particular, having the largest university in the nation, we have a responsibility to lead the way and model how free speech and civil discourse is central to the idea of a university. Perfect. Important. Uh, let me have you move that just a little closer. Thanks. Um, it's great that Arizona's leading the charge on this, Karen. Um, and it's great that we have a leadership that um, supports it, the Board of Regents, the presidents of the universities. Um, what you and I have been consumed with for as long as I've known you, two decades or more, has been the ability to communicate these um, these civic uh, foundations, these civic necessities to the kids themselves, to the youth, to the students. And so having that as a policy is one thing. Communicating its importance to the students is quite another. And this is where your brainchild came up, right? Well, absolutely. Um, and, and first, I wanna, I'd want to i be remiss if I didn't thank you for participating in the inaugural Regents Cup. Um, it, you, you were there for the final round, and, and you got to watch the best of the best. Yeah. So thank you for that, that and thank an you for, for agreeing to do it again. 
Um, but just imagine, our, our universities need to be the place where we have a full-throated defense of the American idea where a diverse people can forge a freer and fairer nation by dealing with their, the issues and problems of the day in a civil manner. It really sets America apart from the rest of the world. And, and you know, you're not born with this. You have to be taught, right? You have to learn. It's a skill. And so by our universities agreeing to participate, these students are, are developing those skills and learning really what it means to, to hash out their differences in a civil manner. And they debate pretty tough topics. I, I was a judge there last year. I'll be a judge this year. Thank you again for inviting me to be one. But I remember the topics last year. They were, they were pretty darn good, relevant, tough topics that I assume the students don't necessarily have a choice in which side they get to pick on these things, right? It's, That's correct. Yeah. In, in fact, in a couple of these They have to argue rounds, as vigorously as, as they can a position they may not agree with. Correct. You know. Correct. And in the final round, they don't even know what side they're going to debate until right. about an hour before they have to do it. Right. So they have to be prepared. Right? They have to be prepared, and, and, and it really forces them to learn the perspective of other people right? and put themselves in the, in the shoes of the person that they otherwise would disagree with. I can't think of a better way, you know, for large parts of the show today, Karen. We're talking to Karen Taylor Robeson of Arizona Strategies. For large parts of the show today, I was talking about um, one of the divides we have in this country is I don't think a lot of the left really knows what a lot of the right is thinking or the way we think or talk or argue or conceive of things because they just ignore us or censor us, whereas we, I think, are much better at understanding their point of view uh, for two reasons. One, it's everywhere. You can't avoid it. But, you know, and they are the teachers. They run the schools. They run the the culture. But two is I think we're a little more intellectually curious as well, and we want to know – what uh, what the um, what the other side is thinking, but this is a great way to get students out of a liberal if they are in a liberal mindset or in a lockstep to appreciate and understand the conservative position on something. And my guess is it will make a lot of difference over time if this kind of program is taken to scale. Absolutely. In fact, you know we have judges from around the country participating. Uh, we we have a judge who who serves on the board of the University of Miami. Uh, we have one of our primary sponsors is a member of the Board of Trustees at Vanderbilt University. Uh, we have the president of the American Council on Trustees and Alumni who, who touch every university in the country who's serving as a judge for us. We have as our keynote speaker Professor Keith Whittington from Princeton University who wrote the book Speak Freely, Why America's Campuses or Colleges Must Defend Free Speech. Um, which actually was awarded the, the Prose Award for the best book in education. And it's now the it, – it's required reading for every freshman coming into Princeton. So, you know, we're getting an awful lot of exposure, which is one of the things that I wanted to do. I want Arizona to be the model, right, to show other universities and colleges not only why but how we must defend free speech. So the students compete in this um – in this uh, Regents Cup, they'll be doing so this Saturday. Correct. People can tune in. Tell what 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 will happen on Saturday. Let's talk about that. Well, first, anybody who would like to to tune in, you can go to the Arizona Board of Regents website. There's a Regents Cup drop down that will give you information on on how to tune in. It's going to be all virtual. Uh, of course, we we had to make a call several months ago as to whether or not we were going to delay the Regents Cup or uh, attempt to do it virtually. So we didn't want to miss a year. So we are doing it all virtually. Uh, so we're learning a lot just on the on the technical side, as you can imagine. But we're very very excited. The students are ready to go. 
Uh, we have significant uh, scholarship money. The private sector has stepped up once again, donated a significant amount of money. So, so this, the students have a lot at stake uh, financially and also just to, to take home the Regents' sure. Cup. Sure. When I first envisioned this, this, I explained it to people like, you know, the Territorial Cup between ASU and U of A is one of the oldest football rival- rivalries in college football. Um, so, so much like the Territorial Cup is to football, the Regents' Cup is to free speech and, and uh, debate. Nice. So Arizona State University, as you know, won the inaugural Regents' Cup. So that trophy has been displayed outside of Dr. Crow's office. Um, and so, you know, who knows who's going to win it this time? You'll have to tune in and watch. How fun. So Saturday morning, what happens? Tell, tell us about what people can expect. In S- Saturday morning, we kick off the festivities at 8 o'clock. The competition begins at 9 o'clock. Uh, there is a, a storytelling round and then an Oxford debate-style round. Um, the the competition concludes at 6.30, and the winners will be announced at 7.30 that night. So it's going to be a long day, but yeah. you can tune in, you know, depending on, on what your availability is on Saturday. You could watch the whole thing or parts of it, but I would encourage everybody to at least get a glimpse of it. The, everyone everyone can tune in as they want. I have to be there for the whole thing. Yes, you uh, Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I have to be. <laughs> um, you and can be there from the comfort of your Zoom screen. I'll be there in, in my pajamas, right. I'll just turn off the video. Karen, um, the um, the uh, the event I was at last year when you did it, when you did the the Regents Cup last year, what impressed me more than anything else about these students is their quickness and agility on their feet because they would take questions from the audience. Some of the other judges would ask them questions, and. This at the same time when you and I and others have been lamenting uh, the teachings of of civics and the teaching of rhetoric. Uh, these kids stand out. They're asterisks, or are they? Do we underestimate how good the crop of young college students is today? I think we're seeing a you know a special group of kids, students who have chosen to participate. Okay. Um, I fear that not enough of our students, you know, understand or, or appreciate even the, the, the need to compete in something like this. Um, you know, higher education writ large in America, you know, took a radical lurch to the left some 50 years ago. And, and unfortunately, too many, too many of our students don't really appreciate the exceptional nature of our country. Um, starting with the First Amendment, yeah. right? Free speech and civil discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, a democracy is fragile, as we all know, mm-hmm. uh, and we have to pass these these skills and this knowledge along to the next generation. And quite frankly, we're not doing a good enough job. And so the Regents' Cup is my my attempt to try and, and, and help and, and just reach more and more students. Well, you, you do that on a lot of fronts, and, and you are great for having that passion, and it's important that uh, we have someone like you in Arizona who does have that passion. Otherwise, it would be lost, Karen. There's one last question, and I don't know if there's any way to ever get to an answer on it, but I'd be curious to know, and maybe we can ask the competitors, uh, the students themselves. I wonder if any of them who have to take on an argument they don't agree with, I wonder if any of them get... Um, get uh, verbally challenged or uh, mocked or um, if they if if they get any negative response at all from some of their cohorts who aren't in 
involved in the in the Regents Cup? Like, why would you even suggest you could debate that point? I wonder if if, if any of their fellow students resent what they are doing. Oh, I imagine they do. You do. Okay. In fact, you may recall the winner of the Regents Cup. You know, this this was a young woman who who entered the competition with an opinion that it was okay to shout down speakers with whom you disagree, right? right? And, right. and, and who, who used language that you might find offensive. And the transformation of that young student yeah. through this process up and through the final round of the Regents' Cup competition, she came out with a radically different opinion and, and, and believes, I think, through that experience that it's more speech that we need, not less speech. Well, that's what we say here. Each one, teach one. You got one through the teaching of civics. Karen Taylor Robeson, you're a dear friend not only to uh, me but the state. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, This is my new hero, I love this woman. I don't know her. She doesn't know me. She is a Gwinnett County, Georgia mother. Her name is Courtney Ann Taylor. And this is her last night speaking to the Gwinnett County Board of Education. She just goes up to an open board meeting and says this. Every month I come here and I hear the same thing. Social, emotional health. If you truly mean that, you would end the mask requirement tonight. Tonight. This is not March 2020 anymore. We have three vaccines. Every adult in the state of Georgia that wants that vaccine is eligible to get it right now. And every one of us knows that young children are not affected by this virus. They're not. And that's a blessing. But as the adults, what have we done with that blessing? We've shoved it to the side and we've said, we don't care. You're still going to wear a mask on your face every day, five and six-year-olds. You still can't play together on the playground like normal children, seven and eight-year-olds. We don't care. We're still going to force you to carry a burden that was never yours to carry. Shame on us. My six-year-old looks at me every month before I come here. She says, are you going to tell them tonight? Tell them I don't want to wear this anymore. And I say, baby, it's not time to fight that battle yet. I try to explain that there's so many things but it's April 15th, 2021, and it's time. Take these masks off of my child. And I know what I'm going to be met with. But Ms. Taylor, the CDC, we did not vote for people at the CDC. We did elect leaders who do create policy. We elected the five of you. We chose you to make difficult decisions for our children. We chose you to make decisions that would be in our children's best interest and forcing five, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-old little children to cover their noses and their mouths where they breathe for seven hours a day, every day for the last nine months for a virus that you know doesn't affect them. That is not in their best interest. And this has to stop. Defend our children. My six-year-old can't come up here and say this. Yeah, It has to stop. It Take these off stop. of our children. Good for her. Good for her. If one parent did that at every school board meeting across the country, the, you know, the left likes to talk about speaking truth to power. 
Has there ever been a greater case of speaking the need to speak truth to power than when it comes to the mediation strategies we've been given and how we cannot contradict certain eminences, how we cannot contradict that which comes forward from Mount Olympus? But Mount Olympus is only one or two people. AF are their first initials. And they have said contradictory things over and over again. But if we contradict them or show them another study, well then, we must be silenced and canceled too. We'll see how long YouTube keeps that clip up. My guess is it won't be there tomorrow. Twitter too. Twitter too. There's just, there's just no ongoing consequence for this. Have you noticed that? There's no ongoing consequence for the slow and steady erosion of our ability to communicate with one another and our ability, our ability to, bre- bre- to, breach, to breach the divisiveness people like Joe Biden say they want to do. How do, you, how do you overcome divisiveness? How do you overcome misunderstandings? If you're not free to communicate, how, how, how do you do it? And social media, corporate America, and the Democratic Party are increasingly making it more and more difficult for conservatives to communicate and air their opinion, whether it is the silencing of them on the main platforms of political discourse, Facebook and Twitter, whether it is the silencing of the exposés of corruption our side reveals, like at CNN, they end up just canceling the accounts of the man in the organization that did the investigation. There's nothing Project Veritas or James O'Keefe said or did that warranted them being canceled from Twitter and Facebook up until a week ago. But they exposed CNN for its bias. They're gone. Just (laughs) – just it's almost funny that you can figure out if you want to be the next person canceled what you have to do and say. It's not hard to figure out. That's the funny part of it. The sad part of it is it's actually being taken seriously by the people doing it, and they think that they're aiding a progressive, they're aiding the development of a progressive society, when what they're doing is driving the conservative movement further and further and further out of their sight, and perhaps in some cases more strongly and underground. That's my guess. That's my guess. That's usually what happens when a free society begins by curtailing free speech. You create an underground. I don't think that's what the Democrats think is in their best interest right now. I really don't. I'll say more about it when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602 508 
return to the free speech thing in a moment. I wanted to, uh, um, while we still had time, make sure I got this in while it was still timely. Uh, and that was Heather MacDonald's take on things Minneapolis and things Ohio. Uh, she writes that President Joe Biden took the occasion of Derek Chauvin's conviction to recycle his favorite white supremacy themes from his allegedly unifying inaugural speech and campaign rhetoric. He said Floyd's murder, quote, ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism that is a stain on our nation's soul. Biden said from the White House the summer of protest had sent the message Quote, enough, enough, enough of these senseless killings, close quote. Biden was not referencing the senseless killing of seven-year-old Jacelyn Adams gunned down in Chicago McDonald's over the weekend. He was not referring to the four dozen black children who were killed last year in their beds, front porches, back porches, at barbecues and family birthday parties and in their parents' cars. He was not referring to the dozens of blacks killed every day in drive-by shootings more than all white and Hispanic homicide victims combined, even though blacks are only 12 percent of the nation's population. Those thousands of black deaths get no attention from the Black Lives Matter movement and its most fervent press acolytes because the homicide perpetrators are other blacks, not the police or whites. Biden, rather, was referring to a phantom idea that blacks have to, quote, worry about whether their sons or daughters will come home after a grocery store run or just walking down the street or driving their car or playing in the park or just sleeping at home, close quote. This would be an accurate statement if it referenced the terrorism of neighborhood gangs and their stupefying, mindless, retaliatory shootings. It is a falsehood, however, directed at the police. In 2020, the police fatally shot 18 allegedly unarmed blacks. Unarmed is not what you think it means. That having been said, that represents two-tenths of a percent of all blacks who died of homicide in 2020 and an infinitesimal percentage of the 40 million blacks in the U.S. You got that? Two-tenths of a percent of all blacks who died from homicide in 2020 died from an officer's gun. If the police ended all fatal shootings tomorrow, it would have a negligible effect on the black death by homicide rate, which is 13 times higher than the white death by homicide rate for decedents between ages of 10 and 43. Yet immediately after the verdict, Barack Obama repeated the same fiction, one that he in fact had pioneered during his presidency, that black Americans rightly, quote, live in fear, close quote, that their next encounter with law enforcement will be their last. Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanahan's tweet that Minnesota is a place where it is not safe to be black because of the police is an equal betrayal of the truth. The idea that blacks are frequently and disproportionately gunned down by the police is an illusion created by selective media coverage. If the press chose to ignore police shootings of blacks and focus exclusively on police shootings of whites, which are twice as numerous, Americans would think that we're living through an epidemic of 
racially biased police shootings of whites. A 2016 case from Dallas involving a white man named Tony Timpa almost exactly adumbrated the Floyd arrest and death, but no one has heard of Tony Timpa. Last week, the Biden administration rescinded guidelines put out by former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions establishing commonsensical preconditions for when the Department of Justice can open a so-called pattern or practice investigation of police departments for civil rights violations. Those investigations almost always result in costly, bureaucratic, clotted consent decrees. And as Harvard economist Roland Fryer has shown, police consent decrees have resulted in thousands of additional deaths when preceded by anti-police agitation. Now Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced the initiation of a pattern or practice investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department so that we can ruin that or what's left of it, too. More on this when we come back. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're thinking of going solar and putting an end to those high utility bills, there's no better time to check out my friend Solar Sandy. Solar Sandy wants to put more of your hard-earned money back into your pocket. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months, and the first 50 families to take advantage of Solar Sandy's offer here will get a $1,000 signing bonus. Solar Sandy is the woman who put integrity back to solar in Arizona, and she has figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar, you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. To repeat, no solar panel payments, no power bill for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. There's no better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. Again, that's AskSolarSandy.com. I wanted to finish up Heather McDonald's piece on the Chauvin verdict. This is her conclusion. Last year, the United States saw the largest percentage increase in homicides in the nation's recorded history, thanks to deep policing. The crime wave has continued unabated this year. It will worsen. The Minneapolis verdict will not change the poisonous narrative about a racist criminal justice system. That narrative ensures that encounters between black suspects and the police will remain fraught. Black suspects will continue to resist arrest, increasing the chance that officers will escalate their use of force. If a suspect death ensues, more riots will follow. The victims will initially be, as always, the thousands of law-abiding innocent blacks in vulnerable urban neighborhoods who yearn for nothing more than more protection. But the power of riot ideology, the blackmailing of American institutions with the threat of rage is too advantageous to give up. Americans should be deeply concerned about the rule of law. And if I might... Just as this was going on and ending, we get the hyper-racialization of the shooting, the terrible shooting in Columbus, 
Ohio, right? A terrible set of narratives that easily enough begin with, how about this BLM activist, Bree Newsom, nearly 500,000 followers on Twitter. You ready? You know the story of the shooting, right? You have two black teen girls, uh, one about to knife the other, and a white cop shoots the one with the knife, killing her, saving the life of the other. Listen to this from Bree Newsom, this, this bit of intelligence. Quote, teenagers have been having fights, including fights involving knives, for eons. We do not need police to address these situations by showing up to the scene and using a weapon against one of the teenagers. Y'all need help. I mean that sincerely. Wow. Wow. Teenage knife fights, just a normal part of teenage life. And there's no call for the cop. There's no need to call for the cops. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, spoke of the woman who was shot, not the woman who was saved and targeted. Jen Psaki from the White House said yesterday she was a child. We're thinking of her friends and family in the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts black and Latino people in communities and that black women and girls like black men and boys experience high rates of police violence. We also know that there are particular vulnerabilities that children in foster care like Makia face. The White House is focusing on addressing these kinds of these kinds of institutions of, of systemic racism and bias head on. Wow. Nothing about the victim or the victim who was saved, nor the race thereof, which would have defeated the racial narrative Jen Psaki's putting on this. Isaac Shore at National Review says there's a whole lot of base stealing in what Jen Psaki said. The officer did not show up on the scene because of some amorphous force like systemic racism or implicit bias. He showed up on the scene because he was asked to by a 911 caller who reported that attempted stabbings were taking place. Moreover, he did not discharge his weapon because of Micaiah Bryant's race, but because she was an imminent threat to another innocent black woman's life. Watch the video yourself. Saki has turned this event into an abstraction, police violence perpetrated on a child. Divorced from context, it makes the officer out to be a monster, but anyone who has subjected themselves to the upsetting body camera footage can plainly see that the officer was forced to make a split-second split decision about whether to stop McKay Bryant from plunging her weapon into her would-be victim. I think most reasonable people would conclude that he made the right one, even while wishing that Bryant were still alive today. If Jen Psaki and Joe Biden are willing to cast aspersions upon the decision made there and the motivations for that decision, they should be made to answer exactly what would have been the right way to respond in such a situation. Without a realistic and detailed answer addressing the facts on the ground, not the abstraction Jen Psaki described. 
Between Biden and Saki, you just have two privileged, powerful preying upon a tragedy for political benefit. And shame on them. And sick is that. How sick is that? Well, I'm going to tell you something. With all the discussion about race and crime in this country, I'll tell you another one that's going to be ripe for renewal. And that's victims' rights. Victims' rights. I don't know how you stop a murderer in plain sight and say nothing about the victim and have nothing, nothing but nice things to say about the murderer. I just don't understand that. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Here's a question. Who do you think has a better – has or had a better understanding of our country and our founding as between Abraham Lincoln and Joe Biden? Who do you think has a deeper, better understanding of our founding of those two? So while Joe Biden can talk about the stain of racism that was woven through our founding and that we still live with to this day, the other view, Lincoln's view of our founding and our founders was this. He said, our founders meant to set up a standard maxim for free society, which should be familiar to all and revered by all, constantly looked to constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. The assertion that all men are created equal was of no practical use in effecting our separation from Great Britain, and it was placed in the Declaration not for that but for future use. Its authors meant it to be, thank God, it is now proving itself to be a stumbling block to those who in after times might seek to turn a free people back into the hateful paths of despotism. Our founders knew the proneness, prosperity to be breed tyrants, and they meant when such should reappear in this fair land and commence their vocation, they should find left for them at least one hard nut to crack the Declaration of Independence. Well, as Scott Johnson says, the nut is cracking. But the point remains. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Leibson. Class is dismissed. <laughs>